So if you're just joining us, we are part of a vision series right now. Um, we talked about gospel and then kind of an intro to mission. And then this week, community. Next week, our local mission and mission to the world. Just to kind of give you guys an idea of what Redeemer City Church is all about. So Nate will be preaching about community this morning. And the reading this morning comes from Galatians 3, verses 24 through 29. So then... The law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise the word of the lord nice word case thanks so how many of you guys know your neighbors names all right all right so so truly uh the uh you know like the website where you search for homes and so forth they recently did a survey about a year ago and they uh they asked that question they said how many people know the names of their neighbors they came back that 53 percent of Americans know their neighbors. Names. Just their names. I mean, that's it. Like, not likes, dislikes, like, just names. Uh, Robert Putnam, he's a sociologist. He wrote this book a number of years ago called Bowling Alone. And he was trying to, to, to kind of put together kind of a picture of what it's like in our culture and the breakdown of community. So, he talked about various social activities and kind of broke it down about what's gone down over the years. So playing cards is down 25%. Uh, frequenting bars, nightclubs, and taverns is down 40%. I don't think he actually asked people in Madison. I think, you know, like, no problem there with that. Uh, having a social evening with someone from one's own neighborhood is down 33%. Family dinners are down 33%. Having friends over is down 45%. And he talked about architecture, how homes that used to have large dining and living rooms, kind of designed for hosting and, and making meaningful connections, how those have been kind of traded in for walk-in closets, home offices, and even just kind of personal entertainment rooms. And he writes this, that from 1970 to 1999, over that stretch, the divorce rate has tripled, the teen suicide rate has tripled. And his conclusion about all this is that, in essence, we live in a culture in which is just very lonely. There's this breakdown of relationships. Now, that book was published in 2000. And then, of course, Mark Zuckerberg came on the scene, right? And a whole host of other people and create all these social networks. And so, all these ways we can stay connected. So here's the deal. Uh, the average person has 338 Facebook friends. Don't feel bad if you have less than that, okay? But, but consider this. That doesn't actually mean that any of those friends are really true friends. You know, in actuality, when you think about technology in general, what's happened in our culture is oftentimes what it does, it just creates kind of disconnected acquaintances. Like, I know what you had to eat last night, but I never sat around the table and actually 
got to actually hear how you're doing. And this culture of loneliness and fragmentation is only further, I would say, challenged by the vast change of demographics in our culture. So, like when Elise, my youngest, when she is my age, she'll actually be a minority in the U.S. I'm not that old, okay? (laughs) uh, When she's around 40, 38, 40, she'll be a minority. Today, if you think about like in Fitchburg alone, right over here, almost one out of every three people are from a different ethnic background other than white. The, The reality is this, that the person across the street, across the cubicle, looks, thinks very different from perhaps where you come from. And there's just no doubt when, when, when demographics change, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but that creates a little bit more of a challenge to actually building community, does it not? Especially in a culture that's fragmented as it is. Economically, socially, politically. Like, how, how do we actually build a community? How do, I, how do we actually get along? How do we actually have meaningful, deep relationships? Now, I know there are many various fields, such as sociologists and psychologists and other fields that kind of throw their two cents in and say, hey, here's kind of a solution or here's some ideas of how to to, to bring this together. And I'm not discounting any of those things this morning. Rather, I would like to, from a theological perspective, from kind of my background, offer what this text says is kind of an, I would say, an antidote to a culture of loneliness. An antidote to a culture that is fragmented. And this antidote offers two possibilities, two things. It offers a new identity, and it offers a new community. Those two things, a new identity and a new community. So here's the deal. the problem of like a culture and being fragmented, like the problem didn't start in like 1970, okay? It wasn't like that was like the golden year and everything's just gone downhill, you know? Like if you actually open up the scriptures, actually it begins almost at the very beginning when God creates this amazing world, creates everything, and it creates this relationship where humanity is supposed to have this great relationship with him and with one another. And then the first parents, Adam and Eve, they disobey. And not only does that wreck their relationship with God, it actually wrecks their relationships with one another. So at the very outset, this world, which was meant to be a place of deep, meaningful connections with God and with one another, is all of a sudden broken. And the great thing is, is that as the scriptures continue to move forward, they don't, it's not like God says, I'm through with this. Like, I'm going to just scrap this whole thing and start over. He actually has a plan to restore it. And not just restore people to him, but actually restore people to one another. So he begins to work out this plan. In Galatians 3, we kind of see the culmination of it. And in verse 24, this is what Paul says. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, one of the things we talked about was this word justification, and it's this language of a courtroom. It's this language in which 
we are, before a holy God, guilty. Well, that God in Jesus has come and has paid the, paid the price on the cross, and then through faith, all of a sudden, we can now, by the judge, be justified, which is to be declared right. It's, it's a declaration that you are forgiven, that you are pardoned, that you are no longer guilty. But what's amazing is that Paul doesn't stop here with, the, with this framework of a courtroom. He actually moves into the living room. He actually moves into the living room. In verse 26, this is what he writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Do you catch that? Sons of God. That's familial language. He brings it into the living room. Last week, Casey was in Galatians 4, and this is the two of the verses he looked at right beneath here, and it says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is incredible. <laughs> you see, this is language of adoption. This is family language. This is taking things out of the courtroom into the family room. It's not just forgiveness and pardon. It's actually a new relationship with God as your father. J.I. Packer writes this. He says this, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. You see, in justification, we hear the verdict, you're free to go. But listen, in the language of adoption, we hear God the Father say, come on in. Come on in. You belong. Now, I want to talk for a moment about this, this idea of being adopted. It says, sons of God, and, and last week Casey kind of hit on this as well, that some of you might protest. When we live in Madison, and there's obviously women here, and you could say, wait, why is Paul saying sons? Why not say sons and daughters? And if you could, for a moment, kind of bracket your concerns and understand that in that culture in which this text was written, that community communicates so much value because to be a son in that day was to be of the highest position of a family. It was to be blessed by the father. They were the ones who were the heirs, not the daughters. Sandra Richter in her book, The Epic of Eden, rightly notes that God is beyond human gender, but the tale of redemptive history comes to us in the language of a patriarchal society. In other words, just hold on. This is an amazing promise. This is an amazing truth. Don't just chuck it to the side. To be a son is an incredible promise that communicates so much value, so much worth, that you're an heir. As you think about sonship, one of the things that happened in the whole language of adoption in that Roman culture was, first thing adoption did was actually, it, it broke old ties. Wherever you came from, it broke those old ties. And, and actually, a couple weeks, we'll be opening up the book of Ephesians, where Paul writes to these churches in Ephesus, in modern-day um, Turkey, or so forth. And he's, in Ephesians 2, he says this about before the work of Christ. He says that you were children of wrath. 
But the very end of that chapter in Ephesians 2, in light of the work of Christ, he says that you are now members of God's household. Do you see this huge change of status? You're not, you're, you're, you've gone from being a child of wrath and through faith in Christ, all of a sudden, you are now a child of God. That's huge. We could, we could sit here and kind of draw out several implications today, but I just want to draw out one. Um, when you think about adoption, it really offers us worth. Worth. Um, not rooted in what we do, but worth rooted in God's love. Um, so I won't tell you which kid of mine, but one of our kids has a gigi, okay? And what a gigi is in our house is a little, little blanket, has some ribbons on the sides. And this particular kid has been so attached to this gigi. I mean, it's like, there were times when he was like, sorry, I just said he. <laughs> okay, sorry, Sam. All right, so I think I'll give him an extra dollar today or something. But there are times where uh, he was, um, where he was so attached to this that we actually tried to get another one in case we lost that one because he just wouldn't sleep. I mean, he was so attached to this gigi. Now, if you were to see this gigi, you would have been like, I'd maybe pay a buck for that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and even now, like, I mean, forget about it. I mean, there's like ribbons off of it. It's tattered. It looks, you know, it's been well used and well loved. But the value of that gigi is not in the actual thing, right? My son wouldn't trade that for anything. He loves it. It's rooted in his love. And, and some of you this morning, I, I, like you, you probably think about your past, or you, maybe you think about your present where you are right now. And you begin to think, I'm not worth being a daughter or being a son. But that's exactly the point in the gospel. It's not about it's not about your past. It's not about your present and who you are. It's about actually this Father's love. That's where it's rooted. I was uh, recently listening to uh, another pastor talk about this particular topic, and he was sharing about how his precocious daughter asked him, Dad, would you sell me for a million dollars? And he was like, no, no, there, there is no price. There's no price. And she was, of course, stunned, right? Certainly there's a price. No, there's not. Your father, I love you. Do, do you see how that changes things? When you're adopted in through faith in Christ to this new family, to this, God is your father. All of a sudden, your worth is not rooted in who you used to be and who you are or how you feel today. It's rooted in this unchangeable nature that God loves you. And I guess we could say we, we know what he's, he would pay for you because, of course, he sent his son. We, we know the value
if you're if you're not a Christian today, let me just say like like this is this is almost I would say the, the pinnacle of Christianity to say that God would actually adopt you and you could become into his family and he would be your father. Simply through faith, through trusting. Now, this this gospel and this kind of orientation of adoption, it doesn't only change things horizontal, or excuse me, vertically. It doesn't just, it, it, it radically changes that, but it actually changes relationships horizontally. So look with me for a moment at, at, at verses 27 through 28. It says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, let me just, just for a moment, let me just read two things that in that culture of the day were common, okay? So this is from a Jewish prayer book. This is what a, a typical uh, man would pray if he were a Jew. Blessed be that God did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be that God did not make me a peasant or a slave. Blessed be that God did not make me a woman. That's straight up Jewish prayer book. Now, now listen to this. This is in Greek culture. This is what they would thank the gods for. Thank you that I was born a human being and not a beast. Next, a man and not a woman. And thirdly, a Greek and not a barbarian. Like in the very culture that this text comes, there are huge divisions, right? Everything. And yet, Paul has the audacity to quote Galatians 3, 27-28, which was probably something that people who were going into baptism would recite. Think about this for a moment. Every one of these relationships mentioned there is as one commentator would say, would be an embryonic form of every relationship we have in this culture. You have Jew nor Greek. That's, that's racial. That's ethnic. You have slave nor free. That's, that's economics. That's power. That's status. And then male, female. I mean, that's just gender. And Paul says this, that in the gospel, every division is now broken down. It's not to the point where race or gender or class is kind of like nullified. It doesn't matter or there's no value there. That's not what's happening here. But it creates a new family. A new family. Just for a moment. Just, just look around. Don't look up here. Just look around at the faces around you. Okay, you can stop. I know like some of you are like, I'm not looking. I saw it. Um, but those faces that you saw, if you're a Christian, I, I mean, that's your brother and that's your sister. This is a family. It doesn't matter what your paycheck is. It doesn't matter what your last name is. 
It doesn't matter your educational degree. It doesn't matter the field in which you work. It doesn't matter your race. Through faith in Christ, the old divisions are gone. This is a new family. We have a Father who loves us. And I just, I want to, for a moment, I just want you to, I want to work out kind of how this gospel changes how we look around, okay? Um, see, here's the deal. All of us, how we're wired, like we're going to build our identity, our worth, our significance on something. And uh, Christian or not Christian, like straight up. And it could be like your job performance or where you're headed in that field. Uh, it, it could be your class. It could be your kind of homogenous family. It could be your race. But I would say this, whatever you build it on, that's going to be the lens through which how you relate to others. So uh, there's this one episode in the sitcom 30 Rock, and if you haven't seen that, I mean, it's whatever. It's, it's, it, it can be funny at times. But Jack Donaghy uh, is played by Alec Baldwin, and he's this misogynistic, kind of power-hungry, like, upper management CEO of GE, whatever. And there's one episode in which you get to see, like, the world through his eyes. And when he looks into the room, everything has a dollar sign. And so, like, the lamp is, like, 50, you know, the um, end table is, like, 500. And then he looks at Kenneth the page, $7. And, see, Jack Donaghy, his character, has built his worth and his significance, and the show kind of mocks it, right, on his how high he can go in corporate world. And the reason why Kenneth is $7 is because he's a page. He's not going to help Jack at all advance up. In fact, he's a rather silly young fellow, you know? Uh, this is a year or so ago, and I was hearing about this interaction that took place at a hospital in Madison here. And if you're in healthcare, uh, well, really any field, you know there's a certain pecking order, you know? Like, even if it's not written out, there's certain divisions, certain things, hierarchies, and so forth. And within a hospital, oftentimes, right, like, who's the chief person? It, it, it's the doctors, and then it's, you know, the nurses, and, and then I don't know who's below that, but there's people below that, I'm sure. And there was this interaction which this doctor showed up in this break room. And there's like these three or four nurses hanging out. And the doctor has this casual conversation. And he knew one of the nurses there. And he walks out. And all but one of the nurses were just stunned. Like, what, what's going on here? What, why did this doctor come into this kind of common setting, actually have a nice, friendly talk with us, and treat us as, I mean, on some level, like, there's not this huge hierarchy. Well, I mean, the answer is this, is that that doctor, he follows Jesus. The, the, the other nurse that was in that room that knew him and didn't, wasn't really surprised by it, guess what? He's a Christian. Why, why can that happen in that setting? Well, it's because the gospel gives you a brand new identity. It's no longer 
My worth is rooted in how I'm viewed by my peers or my work setting. I don't have to get my power, my value, my significance. Actually, it's all wrought up on the fact that I'm a child of God. And that changes how I view others. Absolutely changes things. Um, <clears throat> let me just draw out a couple different questions here and reflections as we kind of wrap up. Um, if you're here this morning and you're curious or you're skeptical, two or three questions for you. What is it that you're building your identity on? Like, where, where are you finding your worth and your significance and your security? I, you're going to it for something, okay? So just be honest, what is it? And then secondly, I'll ask this is, how does that inform, I might even suggest control, your relationships to others? Um, those of us here this morning who are followers of Jesus, let me ask a couple different questions. Um, how might this identity as a family actually change how we view those around here? How might it inform us? How might it change us? Uh, so, I'll just share a couple of different examples. So, when, when, when Redeemer City started out, there was about 12 or 15 adults, and there was about 10 to 12 kids. I don't know, like, there's like three or four on the way. I don't know at the time. And um, th there wasn't a huge program. I mean, honestly, we just started to hang out and actually begin to work out some of these implications as, as family. I mean, it, I just remember in those early days, um, we would eat together a lot. Not just like one night a week, but there'd be other times where we would just grab food. Uh, I remember uh, we went to the apple orchard. We did that. Um, I remember we worked some things out where like, uh, I mean, almost all of our sitters came from that group. Like, if we're going to go on a date night, like, we're inviting people from that group to come watch our kids. And um, that's what it was like, because to be family, what do you do? You, you just spend time together. You grow to know one another. It doesn't just start, like, day one, like, I, I, I love you deeply. You know, that's kind of awkward, right? But it's as I get to know you, as we begin to build life together, it, it changes. Um, my, my encouragement for you, see, we, we function here at Redeemer City kind of in two different kind of intentional kind of formal, yet, you know, for the purpose of not being formal, but structures, and that is, you know, gathering here Sunday and gathering throughout the week with city groups. And, and, and my encouragement for, for some of you is, is going to be, if you're not in a city group, like, step into that. I'm not calling this to be like, this is going to be perfect, but I'm just going to say, um, that's where you get to work out these implications of what it means to be family. Uh, let me speak to one other one, like, <clears throat> to this saying here on Sunday. And, and let me just give you a picture, because one of my favorite things that happens in the midst of a week is when I, when I come home, I open the garage, I drive in, and before I can even open my door, Elise has opened the door of the garage and is yelling my name. I don't know where the rest of my family is, but she <laughs> is waiting there. <laughs> and uh, what I love about that is she's just welcoming me. 
Dad, you're home. So glad to have you here. And one of the ways, I'll just say this on a Sunday gathering, that we get to do is just be welcoming to people, you know? And what's really cool is, I, I don't know, countless times, how many times where it's like just the informality of where's brunch today, and it's new people who step in who honestly, there might be their first or second time here, and they don't necessarily, like, I don't feel like I belong, but what, what, what do we do? We welcome them, right? Hey, come on in. Come eat with us. Like, I just wanted to tell you guys, you guys kill this, okay? Like, this is not a start doing this. This is just a, like, a pat on the, for the guys, rear end, keep it going. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's what that is. Keep it up. It's awesome. Uh, man, I think about uh, our city group last year, and, I mean, things are changing, but I just remember, like, I just remember 20-something guys, single guys, helping young moms with their kids out to the car. I mean, that, that just doesn't happen anywhere else. It probably shouldn't. That'd be awkward, right? But, but it's so great. It's such a great picture of what it means to be family. And here's the deal. This week in our C groups, right, we've just asked the question, how do we live this out? How do we brainstorm this? How, do we, how does this identity of being family actually be worked out into our lives? Like, and so here's how I've seen it work out, but in all honesty, we need to figure this out, continuing to figure out what it looks like, what the gospel calls us to live to like with one another. And lastly, I'm going to say this. How might our identity as family inform how we relate to Madison. Let me read you a quote from Leslie Newbigin. Um, and this is so foundational for me. Um, I've, been, I've been in Madison for over five years now, and it's not that I haven't had great conversations about Jesus and the gospel, but I've just come to realize that um, Newbegin just totally gets it when he writes this. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible? That people should come to believe the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross. I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. It will only be by movements that begin with a local congregation in which the reality of the new creation is present, known, and experienced. And what Newbegin is saying is, you can't take this message of the gospel outside of this framework of this community that's orbiting around it. And, and to, to put it bluntly, like I think most of my coworkers, most of my neighbors, they just don't want to hear the news right now. But, but I do think what they want, they, they want to see a community that's living it out, and they want to be around something like that, and they want to smell it, and they want to see it, and they want to kind of get in the midst of it, and they want to Go, what, what's going on here? Things are different here. In other words, somehow, I don't know what happens, but when you orbit around this news of the gospel, something happens where people begin to figure out what the gospel is by the very relationships of that community. And, and so here's our brilliant strategy for seeing Madison renewed by the gospel. And there's, there's, there can be more said of this. But I'll just say this. It's this last Thursday, and 
I'm sitting drinking a beer in a house watching the Redskins get slaughtered, you know? And, uh, and what I loved about it is I knew all but one of the guys there. And a lot of the guys were, are a part of this family, uh, but there were particularly two that were not. And there wasn't like any like, oh, here's my favorite Bible verse, everybody, let me, let me be the awkward one. Nothing like that. But it was simply watching the Redskins get killed by the Giants and just having a good time. And here are these two people who are in the midst of our community. You know what's really sweet about it is? Like, one of them just moved here. Um, and he was already in the midst of belonging in some sense. Like, that's just so important. It was awesome. Like, I want to tell you, that is mission. Do you get that? Like, this is so important. So we can't be a Christian cul-de-sac, right? We we say this all the time, but it's simply introducing our friends and our neighbors into the midst of these communities and the warp and woofs of the things we do. Um, This afternoon, there's going to be a bunch of us that are going to go throw Frisbee and Ultimate, and it's going to be great because almost half the people there are going to be Redeemer City folks, and the other half are just going to be friends of Redeemer City folks who have literally no connection anywhere to anything like this. And I'm telling you, guys, like, that's mission. Here's the deal. As a family, this is what we are called to. We are called to love and serve this city as if they are the lost children of the Father. Because that's exactly what the Father has done for us, right? He has come after us in the person and work of His Son. He has taken us who were strangers and aliens and children who were running the other direction, deserving other things. And what has He done? He has adopted us. He has welcomed us in. Let's pray. So Jesus, um, we give you thanks today for this, this incredible notion that we are your, you're our brother, and we have a new father, and that we're a family, and so would you uh, continue to help us figure that out? <laughs> God, I pray that in the midst of our city groups that you would help us put feet to these implications of who we are, and that um, there would be people here that feel very lonely and that that would be gone because of simply the community here. Pray, Father, for those who are even new, just checking things out. Pray that they would understand that, that this gospel, it not only changes our vertical relationship, it changes our relationship with one another, and we pray for this city, that you would give us a great love and a concern and sincerity invite others into the midst of this community that's trying to work out the implications of this great news that you love us, you've died for us, and that you're for us. We give you thanks. Amen.